So there's something weird about marriage. And some of you are thinking to yourself, oh yeah, you don't know who I'm married to. It's really weird. But there's, there's something I want to talk about. And I know it's dependent on which, which state you are in. I mean, I don't mean state like you're really angry or something like that. I mean state in terms of your geographical location. That a husband or a wife may legally represent their spouse in some legal situations, some financial situations, and some medical situations. And of course, those things dependent, are dependent from state to state. But what I'm trying to get at is there are places and there are times when I can walk into some sort of um, institution and I can go and sign Kristen's name and it is as legal as if Kristen herself signed it as long as we can, I can prove that I am married to her. And she likewise can do the same thing for me. It's one of the privileges of being married that we represent each other. Not only represent, but in many ways, thinking about that legal document, we are one another. What I do is her. What she does is me. Sound a little confusing? Probably not, but for the most part, we understand that there is something unique about this marriage relationship, and that is something that is shown in our legal, financial, or medical systems in some different ways, in some different places, and in some different times. This morning, as we dive into this text from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, what we're living into and discerning a little bit is some of that same sort of idea in the union of the Son and the Father, the two uh, Godhead, the two persons of the Trinity that we're looking at specifically this morning, because we're walking through this Trinity series where we want to understand better the mystery of one God in three persons. This morning, we're going to deal with two of those persons and how in their unique relationship, especially as it shows in itself in Christ's ministry, helps us better understand who the Father is. Because if we're going to understand the Trinity, we need to understand the oneness, which we talked about last night, again, the, or last week, the impossibleness of there being one God with three persons. This morning, we want to focus specifically on understanding more about who the Father is. That's going to be our work today. And I also, in the same way that I did last week, promise you that there will be some level of confusion. A reminder. We're dealing with an impossibility from a human perspective. We're dealing with somebody, something, and we're talking about something that is beyond our full and complete comprehension, no matter how much we learn. That's the beauty of the Trinity. Let's dig into it this morning, and as we do so from God's Word, let's pray for His blessing. Father, come meet us. We need your discernment. And we need your wisdom. And we long to be reminded more of how much you love us. And as we look at the work, the life, the ministry, the imprisonment, the torture, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, that we learn more about who you are as our Father. 
And we pray, Lord, that you give us some eyes to see, not only physical eyes to see the places at work that where you are at work in our world, but also, Lord, give us the spiritual eyes. That we can see the places where you as our Father are at work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, to bring us closer to you, to help us understand more just about how much you love us, how much you long for us to know you, How much you long for us to be in that deep and intimate oneness with you. That Lord, um, there's no denying that you are with us every step of the way. Lord, speak to us today through your word. This is work that you you and only you can do. We pray you do it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the last of the Gospels. About one quarter from the back of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then finally John before you get to Acts and Romans. John is um, the last of the Gospels, um, the last written Gospel. It is perhaps the easiest of the Gospels for you to read, but it is also the most difficult of the Gospels to really understand. And even as we dig in this morning, we'll understand why. John is perhaps the deepest of all the theo, uh, deepest theo, uh, theologian of all the gospel writers. We're going to start at verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, if you look in your Bibles back in the Old Testament, and you're looking to try to understand the Feast of Dedication, because there were many feasts for the Jews to um, live into. There was the Passover Feast. Um, Some of you have heard of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you're looking for the Feast of Dedication, it's going to be much harder to find. What is the Feast of Dedication? It's actually, it's called an intertestamental feast festival, which means that between the time of the last writings of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there were some things in Jewish culture and in the expression of the Jewish religion through different rabbis and different experiences that Jewish people were have, that there were things in a sense added to the religious expression of the Jews including what was called originally the Festival of the Maccabees, which morphed into the Festival of Dedication. But you actually probably know this by a different name. Does anybody know what that different name is? There's a hint in the text because it says it is winter. What is it? It's Hanukkah. So if you know anything about the festival of Hanukkah, it's the festival of lights. There you have a seven-armed menorah, which is certainly something that we see in our culture, especially in the month of December. And that festival came out of the people of um, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, Um, fighting back against people who had enslaved them, not the Romans, a different group. I want to say it was the Assyrians, but I could be wrong on that one. Um, But they had, um, the people who had come and overtaken the Jews had said that the temple was no longer a place for God. That it was simply, you know, like a public 
edifice. It was a, a facility that could be used for other things, including idolatrous worship. And there were a group of people, the Maccabees, who came and they actually liberated Jerusalem and the temple. And thus, the idea of the Feast of Dedication is dedicating the temple back to God's worship. So in a sense saying, this is only what the temple is for, nothing else, and the work that happens here is the work only of God and no other God. So it's the feast of dedication in the winter, and Jesus is there walking through Solomon's colonnade, which is a part of the temple, uh, and the temple mount. Okay, so why is this important? Well, here's why it's important. Jesus is in the temple at the time when this when they're celebrating that this place is only about God's work. And as he's in the temple doing the things that he's doing, he's doing God's work. And there's an important reason for that. Let's keep reading and understand more. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Pivotal verse to what we're talking about this morning. Let's look at that verse specifically again, verse 30. It's only six words in English, but it speaks volumes. Let's read it together. On three. One, two, three. I and the Father are one. Now, any of you who are English grammarians who read that sentence will find something very quickly that is problematic. What is problematic? It doesn't agree. I and the Father are plural subjects of the sentence, right? I and the Father are two things. That's plural. And the verb are is a plural verb. But the direct object, and I think I'm getting my grammar right. I hope I'm not getting it wrong. The direct object of the verb, one is singular. Plural subject, Plural verb, singular direct object receiving the action. It doesn't work. It's an impossible grammar construction. But it is coming from a God who is the impossible. And it's important for two reasons. First of all, it affirms the oneness of God the Father. So when you see our one, I mean, obviously, it's there in the word. Oneness of God, God, the oneness of the Godhead. Let me make sure I get my vocabulary clear over here. It's the oneness of the Godhead. But in saying Jesus' words, that I and the Father are one, he's talking about the plurality of the persons. 
oneness of the Godhead, plurality of the persons, one God in three persons. This is where Jesus, in this grammatical construction even, is affirming what we Orthodox, and by Orthodox I mean those who live into the trusted understanding of this theological truth, those who are Orthodox, what we're living into is one God, three persons. Christ here is affirming that in this grammatical construction. And he, so he's reminding us when we're talking, when he's talking about the Father, okay, because this actually is something that you can look at when you're reading your Bible in your own devotions. When Jesus talks about the Father, who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? Himself. But who is he talking about? The Father. Okay? That's where we get into the confusion. That's where we get into the hard part. When Christ is talking about the Father, he's talking about the Father, the other person of the Godhead besides the Spirit, but he's also talking about the God, the Godhead himself. So Christ is talking about both himself and another person when he uses the words, my father. That's where we get into the confusion and the challenge. That's where we get into the impossibility. And I just want to say that because we need to have room in our theology of the Trinity for the confusion that we will have in trying to understand a God in three persons. In the same way we talked about it last week, we need an impossible God. Here's an affirmation of that. God is beyond our comprehension, even using six words that describe the relationship between Christ the Son and God the Father. Verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, which is interesting that it even uses the word again. It's like this is a daily occurrence, it seems, in the life of Christ. Like, okay, and they were going to kill him again. Here they are, and why they're killing him is important. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, friends, we're going to say, um, boy, those silly Jewish leaders. Like, how can you stone Jesus? I mean, if you ever met Jesus, would be your first response be to Jesus to stone him? Of course not, right? Those of you who know Jesus, your first response will be to seek to embrace him or to thank him or to come up to him and say, thank you for what you have done for my life. Show me more of who you are so that I can learn to understand you and worship you more. But that's because we know the story. And we know how this works. And we indict these Jewish leaders for being foolish that they would stone Jesus. But I want to say this. We do the exact same thing. We just do it differently. I'm going to ask you this question. How many times have you missed God at work in your life? 
How many times have you missed it? Has anyone here missed God at work in their life until later on they look back and said, oh yeah, there he was. He was doing something. Right? And sometimes those things look really bad. Sometimes the things where God might be at work in our lives involve things that are hard to think, like bankruptcy or even addiction or things like diagnosis or even divorce places. Hard to say. Challenging. Things like death. How can God allow this to happen? And yet, oftentimes when we look back, we see how God has redeemed these things or transformed these things, not from death or pain or suffering, into life. And those stories among us are myriad. Okay? Let me give you just a funny, goofy, silly example. I remember saying, I said this when I was 17 years old, there's a lot of places in this world that I do not want to live. And one of the places that I do not want to live the most is California. And in California, the place in California that I want to live the least is Southern California. And so when I met a Southern California girl who was a beautiful blonde, and I started dating her, I thought to myself, I am going to get this lady to go back to Canada with me. It didn't work that way. We ended up in Alameda, California, in the Bay Area, where she was teaching Christian school, and I was working at a certain arts and crafts store, and leave me alone, all of you know what it is. And I remember being in our apartment at 1011 Taylor Avenue, apartment number A in Alameda, California, saying, God, this stinks. What are you doing here? You can't be, this, is, this has to be brokenness. This has to be because I, I've messed something up. I missed you somewhere along the way. And because of that, I'm here. And I can tell you that although you may not think this is God at work bringing me here, I see it all over the place. I see it in my life, my family's life, in the life of ministry that I've had the privilege of being a part of experiencing as God has been at work in the communities where Kristen and I have lived. I give God great praise for that. Another example, because sometimes we have eyes and we miss it. When I was in youth ministry, oftentimes what happens when you're in youth ministry is um, folks who are older think that you're going to be the one to fix kids because you're the youth pastor, right? And we were at a ministry activity at the church, and it was later in the day, and um, some boys, two high school age boys, I think one was a sophomore and one was a freshman, were just walking past our church facility and saw an open door, and being teenage boys, they thought, Hey, um, let's go check that out. And I'm sure we're up to some sort of mischief. But they weren't counting on Grandma Heisinger. Grandma Heisinger was really one of the grandmas of the church who watched over things. I, I don't think she ever gave a little cuff to a kid on the head when he was misbehaving, but she certainly pointed a finger or two because she made sure that you knew whether or not you were doing what you should do at church. Grandma Heisinger found these two boys. They said, oh, we're here to get a drink of water. Yeah, right, okay, whatever. But she grabbed both of them and she brought them to me and she said, here, 
Pastor Scott, John and his friend have been walking by the church and you need to meet them. It was in a sense saying, you need to deal with these boys and hang out with them and build a relationship with them and show them Jesus. But as a youth pastor, you're like, oh, great. Like, these are sort of the kids that you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do here with these kids. They don't want to come and talk with me. They don't want to hang out with me. They just want to get in and get out and be about their day. But grandma got them because grandma got them. Now all of a sudden they're sucked in. So I said, okay, um, John, I don't remember the kid's name, the other kid's name. Where do you go to school? And they said, Redwood High. Okay, Redwood High. Um, You know what? Tomorrow, because that day was Sunday, tomorrow I'm going to go to to Redwood High and maybe we can hang out for lunch. Where do you have lunch? Taco Bell. Okay, I'll come to Taco Bell. I'll buy you a couple tacos. Is that okay? They're saying free food? Sure. That led to about three or four months of John and I hanging out. And John um, was a, lack of a better term, a lost boy. His, he had no relationship with his father. His relationship with his mother was very tense. He was living into every single pleasure that he could find in the world, in turn, uh, including things like alcohol, sexuality, drugs. He was pursuing any kind of pleasure that he possibly could. And sometimes I hung out with him and I thought, I don't even know how to speak his language because the things that he's talking about to me that he's so excited about, I just didn't get or understand. They hadn't been a part of my life. I just kept on trying to say, you know what? I care about you. I hope that there's better things for you ahead. And, you know, I tried to, we prayed together a couple times, although he wasn't really into the prayer stuff. And then after three months, it was the end of school and it sort of fell out. We didn't see each other for, I think it was about 18 months. And then one day, um, this was in the early days of cell phones and all you could really get were phone calls and text messages. And I didn't get a lot of text messages at that point. I get a text message from a strange number that I don't know and it says, hey, can we meet? Of course, I ask, who is this? Because you don't just respond to those sorts of texts and say, sure, we can, that's great. Um, and he said, this is John. Can we hang out? Okay. So we hung out for about an hour and a half, and John began to tell me about the, more of the brokenness in his life. And one of the things that he said to me was he said, I don't know where to turn right now, but I know you talked about Jesus as somebody can change my life and my life needs to be changed and we sat it was actually in the council room of the church where all the pictures of old pastors are on the wall and all the books of theology and it's a very austere room and we prayed that Jesus would come and invade John's life and make it new and I remember leaving that room going what just happened I met this kid because he was trying to get a drink of water We had a bunch of tacos. He's done a lot of stupid stuff. All I did was hang out. All I did was sometimes stumble and fumble my words and didn't really say any good things and yet somehow God was at work here and brought John Jesus. I dismissed God's work in this young man's life and I almost missed it. How many times do we do that? How many times do we miss that in our world? With friends, with kids, with our spouse, with people in our workplace, with ourselves. 
Where do we miss God being active? So when these Jewish leaders go to Jesus and say, picking up rocks and saying, we're going to stone you because you are not God. We do that all the time. We just don't do it to a person. We do it to the places that God shows himself in our lives. And we say, this is not God. And then God shows up. And he shows us himself. And he reminds us just how incredible and impossible he is. The passage continues, verse 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I've said you are God's. He called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside. What about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. In these words that Jesus is saying to the Jewish leaders, he's saying in essence this, you don't believe, but watch. If I don't show you God's stuff in what I do, I am not who I say I am. But if you see God's stuff in me, you are seeing God. Christ is saying, you want to see who God is, the Father? Look at me. Because I'm doing the stuff that is Him. And for then, for us to hear, as people who long to know who the Father is, you want to know who the Father is? Then you need to know your Gospels really well. You need to look at every jot and tittle of the text of who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, how he lived, how he interacted with the world. Because every time we learn more about what Jesus did, we are in fact seeing the Father. In the same way that I am Christian in our oneness, in all those ways that I talked about before, Christ is the Father in what He does. So when He performs a miracle, He is testifying to the fact that the Father is the God of the impossible. When He is healing, Christ is showing us that the Father is the one who heals the great physician who longs for His people to be whole. And when we see the Son redeeming all people through the grace of the cross and the beauty of His death and new life, we are being told that the Father is the Redeemer of life and the Giver of life and the One who transforms life into new things. Look at Jesus. You see the Father. So if you're wondering who God is and whether God is not a loving God, look at the life of Christ and you see it littered with love. 
You see it littered with sacrifice. You see it littered with grace. And it's interesting what comes next. Because it shows just how faithful Jesus was to his work. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed. Many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, if you see the works of God in me, then know I am who I said I am. I and the Father are one. And then he goes to this place in the desert and all the people who come and watch. And I'm sure that many of them were watching with close eyes. Is he going to mess this up? Who is he really? Is he really living into being our Redeemer? Our, the big word, that is a special Jewish word, the Messiah? Is he really living into that with his ministry, with his words, into the conflicts that people bring to him, in his love for children, in the miracles that he does, in the, in the beautiful teachings that he gives us, teachings unlike any we have ever heard. In all these things, is he living like God? And all of them say everything that John said about this man was true. Jesus testifies to who he is in relation to the Father with his life. So when we look at Jesus, we know we're looking at the Father. Okay. I want to give you one more crazy impossibility that challenges our notion about the union and the relationship, not only between Christ the Son and the Father, but also the Holy Spirit. We got it on the screen. Let's throw the Athanasian Creed up there. Does anyone know what the Athanasian Creed is? You ever heard of it? Okay, it's actually a really important thing in your life. You just don't know it. And I I apologize for that. I do. Forgive me. Because I have not shared with you enough of our creedal beliefs. Creeds and confessions are those things on which we build our theology. These things govern how I think, I teach, how we as a community live. The Athanasian Creed is actually... I'm going to ask you to do something you haven't done in a long time. Pull out your blue books. Seriously. Yes, those blue books. Turn to the very back. When somebody finds the Athanasian Creed, yell out the page number. What? Five. Oh, it's not the back. It's the beginning. They started off with it. Awesome. Page five. Thank you, Roger. Oh, five in the back. You're confusing me now, Mr. Whitman. Five in the back. Okay. Here's what this is. When the early church was beginning, the early church was trying to figure out how to think rightly. They wanted to be, remember the word, good theologians. Because who's a theologian? Who's a theologian? All of us are. We understand the thinking about God. 
who God is. They wanted to be good theologians, so they got together at various times and tried to share teaching that was good theology and specifically about things like the Trinity. So they got together and had big, long discussions. Sometimes they got in fights. Sometimes they even got in wars over this thing, this stuff, because right thinking was that important to them. Out of that come a series of creeds. We have three. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. The reason we're pulling out the Athanasian Creed, it is the one who, that deals with the Trinity the most. You have an old writing of the Athanasian Creed in the back, or the back of your hymnals. We're going to look at the newer reading, so at least you can compare and see some of the differences. But I want to read this for you so we can understand some of the complexity that we're living into. You ready? Right from the beginning. Whoever desires to be saved should above whole hold to the Catholic faith. Not Catholic church denomination. Catholic church meaning all believers from all times and in all places who confess the true Christ. Okay? It's not Catholic, capital C, Catholic, small c. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith. And get ready, because folks, there's big stuff here. What we worship, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. Plural subjects, remember? I and the Father. The person of the Son is another. I and the Father. Didn't talk about the Spirit, but and that the Holy Spirit, still another, the three persons of the Trinity. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, one Godhead. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Keeps going. The quality the Father has, the Son has, the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. Eternal things. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. So it's giving all these attributes to all three persons of the Trinity. And you're starting to say, maybe there is only one God. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, no, wait, that's not true. Yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. You look at that and you say, okay, Maybe it adds to your confusion. Maybe you wonder, okay, why is this so important? Well, for that, we need to go to one other text, and it's not the one written there. We're not going to jump to John 17, verse 11. We're going to jump instead to Romans chapter 6, 3 to 5. We're going to finish with this, and there's a good reason why we're finishing with it. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. Okay, we take baptism seriously in this community. You know that. Here, Paul is talking about baptism. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death, okay? So we get something that's important here. We, through baptism and through the affirmations of baptism, professions of faith, are being united with Christ, okay? You hearing me? That word union, united with Christ. Oh, let me make sure I'm getting here. We were therefore buried with him through his baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. So you and I have eternal life, not because Christ gives us new life. Christ actually gives us his new life because we're united with him. Our new lives are Christ's new life within us. Okay? Finally, it says this, for if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection like his. Why are you saying all this, Pastor Scott? Because we heard Jesus say we are, that he and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And now we're hearing elsewhere in the word Romans 6 that we are united with Jesus Put the logic together. We are united with the Godhead. The one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what's the payoff? Payoff is this. That when you go out and are part of the work of ministry that God has for you, you are doing what Kristen and I do for each other. We are the other person. You are God to the world. Not that you're God. Hear me. You're not God to the you're not God, but you bring God to the world because you are in union with him. Which has a huge responsibility. Right? It's one of the reasons why people have so much of a problem with the church sometimes. Why? Because when they look at the church, they see people who don't love. They see people who are judgmental. They see people who can be racist or homophobic. They can see people who reject others. They see people who say to others, you are not good enough. And for us to hear here in our union with Christ and Christ's union with the Godhead that we are showing God to the world because He is in us, when we mess that up, we are showing them a God that doesn't exist. And our challenge becomes then to show them a God that is real. To show them a God that is the one we are yet one with in the same way Christ's ministry could not be argued with because he was all about the God stuff. That our ministry should not be argued with because we are all about the God stuff. So friends, go from this place. Go into whatever world it is that you live into this week. School, home, neighborhood, workplace, wherever that is. Go and carry with you who you are, united with Christ, Christ united with the Father, and you are showing God's power to the world because He is with you. Show them the real thing. Show them love. Show them grace. 
Show them forgiveness. Show them hope. And finally, show them life. Let's pray. Father, in this confusing, convoluted thing that is the Trinity, is who you are. Lord, may we understand more fully how as we live into who you have made us to be, that we are actually showing you Not just some signs of who you are, but who you are in us. You are united with us. It's one of those mysteries that we don't quite get. The Spirit is united with us. And if that's the case, Father, if you have poured yourself into us, then Lord, may we be testimonies. May we allow our sin to be broken of its power in our lives so that our testimony is one of truth, love, grace. We are people who, in our kindness... And in the way that we care deeply for others and want to come alongside others when they're in trouble or in challenge or in suffering, that, Lord, we bring you into those spaces. Father, you have given us this power in your union with you in your death and in your resurrection. May we then live into that truth, not of our own ability, but because you are with us. We pray this all in Christ. Amen.